This episode of Beat This Shift with Greg Rawlings is brought to you in part by Strongside Sports, Collectibles, and Memorabilia. Strongside Sports and Collectibles is here to enhance your hobby and collecting experience. Let nostalgia work its magic as you take this journey through time searching for that perfect card or memorabilia for your collection. Also sponsored in part by Owl Eye Books, the outstanding children's book publisher responsible for such titles as Year One with Type One, Family Shark Tornado, Legends of Baseball from Aaron to Ozzy. With colorful images, slick rhyming, and loads of baseball trivia, Legends of Baseball from Aaron to Ozzy is fun for current and aspiring baseball fans of all ages. Grab a copy on paper book or ebook from Amazon today and help pass your love of the game on to the next generation of fans with Al I Books. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back with another episode of Beat the Shift with Greg Rawlings, and we got some special guests tonight introducing. Mr. Douglas Andrew Minkavich, you might know him from maybe an Olympic gold medal, maybe from a World Series of the Red Sox, or maybe you're a big Toledo Mudhen fan. Either way, he's joining Greg along with Brian McRae, who's got baseball in the family, and you probably remember him from being on the Royals, but I remember a little stint on ESPN. Maybe he can talk about that. I want to know anyway. Ladies and gentlemen, here's your host, Greg Rawlings. Guys, pleasure having you guys on the show. We're going to get right into it. We've got a Braves-Dodgers game going on, but we're going to get through it anyway. So, Doug, how you doing, man? Good. How are you? I'm doing, I'm doing fabulous here in the hills of West Virginia. Beautiful. Brian, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing good here in KC and uh, just hoping the Chiefs can uh, get it back on track because people are worried about the Chiefs playing right now. <laughs> are you all going to figure out that defense? I don't think the defense is going to get figured out. I don't know if you can see it. Uh, uh, if I duck down a little bit above my head, there's the Bo Jackson photo back there. That's okay. my dude, man. So I, I'm a Raiders guy, so this could get interesting. Well, Bo <laughs> Jackson is the reason why – one of the reasons why I got called up. So it, uh, I, don't, I don't mind uh, anybody being a, a Bo Jackson Raiders fan or whatever the case is. Him getting hurt allowed me to get called up from double-A. There you go. And we did have a question about that. So I'll just jump right into that question. One of the questions we had on the page um, was originally Bo Jackson was playing center field. You got called up. Bo moves to left field and then you're in center. So how did that transpire? Was it something like your defense just made him make the move or did Bo want to move or how'd that go down? Bo was injured and he thought that playing center field was a little bit too taxing. On him, I think he separated his shoulder diving for a ball, and I was in Memphis in Double A, and playing well. And uh, John Sherholz was a GM at the time. He called the manager Jeff Cox and asked him if I could play at the major league level. And, and Cox, he's like, I don't know if he can hit at the major league re- level right now. And John Sherholz said, I didn't ask you if he could hit at the major league level. I asked you if he could play at the major league level. And um, that was it. They said, you'd probably be up for a couple weeks while Bo was uh, rehabbing. And when Bo came back, he said he didn't want to play play center field anymore. So I took over and, and played well enough that two weeks ended up uh, uh, going on 10 years before I shut it down. <laughs> I hear you. I only made it to the high school level, but center field was my spot too, man. I, I loved it, being out there roaming. So well, that one play he made, where he like climbed up the wall. You see on one of those highlights. Was he in left at that time or center? Yeah, he was in left, and I, I wasn't. Uh, I think that was a year before. That was okay, in the gotcha. old uh, Memorial Stadium in Baltimore. 
Gotcha. All right, Doug, I'm going to jump into it with you, man, real quick. We got uh, Matt Claremont wants to know. He's going to just dive in hot and heavy. In regards to the World Series ball, did that whole messy experience impact how fondly you recall the 2004 season? Uh, it had its moments where I didn't want – I know I didn't wear my ring for a while just because I thought, you know what, like the way it all went down and it was a it was a train wreck from the start. Um, you know, the only thing I'll kind of start with it was it was when I – we got back to Fenway Park the next day and we're packing our stuff up after the World Series is over with. MLB's in there authenticating all the balls and everything that's in there. And um, Lucino was in the clubhouse with us and walked past him. And, and uh, he's and I was getting it. The MLB guy wanted to authenticate it. I was like, yeah, sure. And, and Lucino goes, was this the ball? Is this the last out? I go, yeah. If he would have asked for it right then and there, I would have handed it to him. And he didn't make a big deal out of it. And then next thing you know, it's – urban legend after urban legend after disaster. And, uh, but, uh, I, you know, for me, once all that kind of went away and kind of went to its rightful spot, I just kind of, I was like, you know what, I'm not going to let this deter being a part of a group that, that did something the way we did it. And, uh, you know, I, I was only there for, I got there the deadline and those guys made me feel welcome. And all of us, me, Dave, uh, Orlando, all the guys that came in late, we felt like we were part of that team forever. And uh, the one thing that team did that was so special was they made everybody's job, no matter how small it seemed, it was, it made everybody, made everybody feel really important. So no matter what it was, whether it was defense or base running or whatever it was, no job was too small. And uh, that was the best part about being with that group. I'm not even a Red Sox fan, but my, my grandpa's favorite player ever was uh, Ted Williams. And I used to hear the stories about him. So if, if we're talking about the rivalry of New York and Boston, I'm going Boston every day of the week. So that was awesome, reversing the curse. And you ch changed so many people's lives just with that season, man. Because, you know, you know how they are up there. It's crazy. Oh, yeah. There's fans and then there's, then there's Red Sox fans. And there's Red yeah. Sox Nation. <laughs> So, Brian, we have uh, people in the group all different ages from studying the game. We got some older guys in there, Manny Sanguin. We got Denny McClain to name a few. But this one's from you, from Daniel Harden. He wants to know, how's your dad been doing? Coming from the bloodline of the, you know, baseball bloodline. My dad's uh, – he's in Bradenton, Florida. That's where my uh, my parents have uh, always resided. And he uh, he's hanging in there. He's not doing anything baseball-related. He's had some health problems since he – he got out uh, his last year, I think it was 2009 or 10 with the Cardinals. He was their, mm -hmm. uh, their hitting coach at the big, big league level. Um, he's diabetic and with COVID going on, he hadn't done much. And he has, uh, goes through dialysis three days a week. So Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, he does dialysis. And um, him and my mom have just been low key over the last 18 months or so. My sister, and her kids are there, and my brother is there with one of one of his kids. So they get to do some things with the with the grandkids, and they're close close by. And I get down to see them quite a bit. But uh, they just been hanging low and try to stay healthy through this whole craziness. I mean, I can understand it. I mean, sometimes it's almost two years now, and I don't feel like it's real life sometimes. But my mom, she's in her early sixties. She's got she's diabetic as well, health health issues, and. She don't go out much, and she's retired now. So, I mean, she just kind of keeps to herself and tries to stay uh, under the radar because 
You know, I, there's a lot of older people, man. They're, they're, they're still worried whether you had the vaccine or not. And understandably so. I just hopefully at some point, man, we got to get uh, past this and have end in sight. But I don't know. We'll see. I'll get to see him in Thanksgiving and we rent a beach house, uh, Anna Maria Island and get all the kids together, grandkids together and, and hang out and, uh, and spend about five to seven days, uh, just catching up and, uh, watching the sunset and hanging out on the beach. Family football, good food. You know, that's all good to me, man. You know? Yes. Uh, Doug, this one's for you from Chris Hayes. He said, what was it like playing in the Olympics, uh, hitting a walk-off homer back in 2000 in Sydney, and how does that compare to playing in the majors? Oh, uh, it's funny. The I'll give you kind of the quick cliff notes of it. Uh, I got there, and we had the preliminary games, and I was had a really good year in AAA that year, and I get there, and I only hit I got was a home run to center field, and uh, which I never did. I never hit balls out the center. And I'll never forget the day before the game before they made the final cut. Reggie Smith was our hitting coach. Great man. Loved everything about him. He walked up to me and he kind of said, uh, hey, are you going to start hitting? Because they they want to <laughs> send you they want to send you home. And I said, Reg, just tell him when the bell rings, I'll be ready. And it was the most like. BS I've ever told somebody because I was I was just trying to buy some time. And uh, long story short, I got a we faced Dice K, Matsusaka from Japan the first game, broken bat, hit and run single. And from that moment on, the game went from fast forward to slow motion. Um, and I'll still remember it like it was yesterday. I remember literally because Gooky Dawkins pinch runs, he gets picked off first base. I'm bunting until he gets picked off. Bunt first two pitches, they throw two balls. Tommy has this hit and run. I foul it off. He hits and runs again, and Gookie gets picked off. And Tommy goes out and argues, and I remember sitting back, and uh, it was just like a sidearm righty. And I remember thinking, like, tell, asking myself while they're arguing, I was going, how have I elevated the ball in the past against a sidearm guy? And I thought, well, hey, man, just get, a, get an off-speed pitch, have it come up out of his hand and get out in front of it and see what happens. And literally – I'll take this still shot to my grave with me as I, I remember I can see it like it was yesterday fingers on the side of the ball, the ball pops up out of his hand. And I thought immediately with thought was, Oh God, don't I go, Oh God, don't mess this up. And I literally, I hit it. And I remember running around the bases like a little kid and being like, I can't believe that just really happened. Um, all those times you kind of visualize stuff to happen and it actually happened. It was, i never hit another walk off the rest of my life. And I'm glad I got to pick that time to do it. As far as comparing to the big leagues, um, you know, I think it's more of conducive for like the playoff time because it was a two-week, three-week kind of window. And I always felt like I was more built for that than I was for the long haul of a 162. Um, they both have their positives. Obviously, the big leagues is the, you know, top of the, the best talent in the world. And uh, But uh, I honestly said it, without the Olympic experience, I don't play in the big leagues it, probably at all because I, I it gave me a sense of confidence to where I thought you know what if I can't play another inning of baseball I've done something that not many have said they can do and I think it gave me confidence to finally just play like I was like just relax and and play at the big league level instead of trying to put so much pressure on myself yeah and then the passion playing for your country you know so uh, I mean some people take the added pressure for that but it actually propelled you so you know that's awesome 
I remember I was like lucky it was yesterday. To, I was lucky enough to put to wear that uniform three times. So I I would love to get one day. I joke with Ernie Young all the time. He is the hitting coach this year in the Olympics. Like I would love to be able to to manage that team one day and, and get another crack at it. Hey, it could be it could happen, man. I hope so. Hey, Brian, this one's from Chris Hayes for you, man. He says, as a guy who relied heavily on speed, do you feel the teams today are underutilizing that aspect of the game when it comes to stealing bases? And if so, why do you think that is? I think uh, the game has changed to a more power, um, you know, power conscious, and there's power pitching, power hitting, and teams don't want to give up outs on the bases but you can go back to the 2015 Kansas City Royals and, you know, they won a World Series that way. They went to two World Series in 14 and, and 15 that way. So there, there's a place for everything. And I think that, you know, there's going to be a turnaround where it comes back where the athletic player and the hit and run, stolen base, some of those things – are going to come back in full swing into, into the game and your teams are going to utilize them to their strengths. And, you know, you won't see as many teams playing for the big three run home runs all, all the time. I, I think in, in, in four or five years or so, we may see a little, little change and you may see more small ball on some of these ball clubs because it's, it's tough as you see now in the playoffs with some of these teams to try to manufacture runs, they don't know how to do it. And these games, all these one-run games in the postseason, if a bunt would be put down or an extra base, not even a stolen base, but just an extra base on a ball in the dirt or taking a, a base going from first to third, you see a lot of teams that are very, very passive on the bases because nobody wants to make a mistake on, on, on the base path. But you have to utilize that part of your game, and I think there's a lot more teams that could benefit from it. I mean, I agree with you 100%. So it's like the, the analytics is driving everything. And I, would like, love to, I would love to say something on that. Like, it's ahead, funny. I had, a, I had a – when I was managing with the Twins, they – we went through this exact same conversation. This was probably 2014, maybe 15. Um, they asked – like, I was like – because they were talking about the same thing about home runs. And I kept trying to explain to them, like, you're not going to beat Justin Verlander in October 8-1. to one. I said, they're like, well, what kind of team would you want? And I said the exact same. I said, I want the Kansas City Royals. They're athletic. They all are dangerous. They all can hit the ball over the fence, but they all take what the game gives them. And they put pressure on you from the first pitch to the last. And it's funny what Ryan just said about they're afraid to make an out. And it's like they're not – they talk about now the game is more of we don't care if you strike out. It's like – well, like the object the opposite of that is a home run, right? They don't care about the strikeouts. They want more power. But yet on the deep, on the offensive side, as far as stolen bases, they don't want to run into outs. And you're like, well, you can't look at it. Like you, you can't have it both ways. You can't accept the strikeout for the homer, but not accept the fact that we're going to put pressure on people when we can. They look at it the negative way of like, oh, we don't want to give up outs on the bases. But yet you look in these games and the stolen bases are they're giving them away because the levers don't hold runners anymore catchers don't throw it's it's pretty it's pretty crazy I, I i would like i'm praying that the game gets back the way it used to be i feel like they don't even utilize their uh the, the team that they have like you got to know your personnel 
And if you have a team that can steal bases, you can absolutely come in and impose your will on a team by being aggressive, running the bases. And But it's like – and not only that, like bunting in the shift. It's like I sit here and watch this. I'm going to name Ozzie Albies, but fast player, plays second base, hits from the left side and right side, but they literally shift every time. How do you not just drop a bunt down every single time? If you keep bunting, they're going to quit shifting at some point. I mean, but no one does that. It's like, are we too good for singles? Isn't it about getting on base and using that speed? It, it drives me nuts, man. I'm kind of old school, but I, I can't but deal it, with it. There's right a mentality that's starting. I coached in college for five years, and uh, my last year at the college level was 2018, and you're you're getting that from your better players in high school and your better players in college. I coached in a collegiate summer league similar – to the Cape Cod League, and we were getting some good players there. And I was asking them, what are you being taught? And little guys are being taught to lift the ball, elevate the ball, get the ball ball in the air. And it's like, well, guys, Launch angle, baby. Trouble, <laughs> guys at the higher level, they can catch fly balls. Right. And if you're not hitting the ball out of the ballpark, it's just a fly ball. That does you no good. But it's, it's being taught at the lower levels, and that's why what we're seeing right now. At some point, I think that's going to change. I hope so. It'd be for the better of the game. There's so much more to the game than walking, striking out, or home runs, you know? Uh, it's hard to walk. It is. Yes. You're right. Uh, we touched on the Sydney home run. So, Bo Payne wants to know how the Sydney home run compares to reversing the curse. That's tough. Yeah. I mean, I, I go back to what Tom Lasorda said. Tom Lasorda said it best. He's like, he may use this analogy and it makes sense. He's like, if the Dodgers win the World Series, the Giants fans are unhappy. Uh, if the United States wins a gold medal, the whole country's happy. And, uh, you know, and it's – there were a couple Japanese big leaguers sprinkled in there. The, the Cuban national team was, was pretty – was as good as it gets. Uh, and I think with the team we had, you saw, uh, you know, you saw up-and-coming Roy Oswalt, Ben Sheets. You know, the list goes on. We had Pat Borders was my catcher. Um, you had some guys, Adam Everett played a long time. Obviously, having it, it would have been, it would, I think it meant more. Obviously, I wouldn't have been on the team if they would have had Chipper Jones and, you know, all the guys that could have played on Team USA. But um, I can honestly say there's two special, like there's one in the World Series and there's, and then there's the one that we won in 04. It's, right. uh, they're both extra, I mean, they're both amazing feats that, you know, not everybody has ever done, but like 04, the way we did it down three nothing um, was, uh, you know, I, I always say I was in the right place at the right time a lot of times. And uh, th that nothing, that's about as true a statement as I can put on that. He had a second question. Um, what was it like playing huge personalities of people like Poppy, Pedro, Manny, and Kurt? And uh, who was the glue that held that team together? Was it Veritech, Tito, or somebody else? Um, those guys were as good as a guy. I knew David from my days in Minnesota together, um, running around on the backfields in the minor leagues. Um, you know, Pedro was phenomenal. He, he brought me over with him with the Mets in 05. Uh, he has, he was very big into getting me traded there. Um, you know, all those guys were, uh, you know, I, I, I couldn't have walked into a better clubhouse than that one. I knew most of them either playing against them in high school or college uh same city in spring training so we played him every almost seemed like every day um but i had history with most of them 
And uh, that team really wasn't, didn't have one or two guys. It had 25 guys, like, meaning like there wasn't necessarily one guy we leaned on more than the other as far as leadership goes. That was just, it was when, like, when Johnny called us a bunch of idiots, no truer statements ever been made. Um, <laughs> that we had, we had a bunch of guys that really, like, we had the Manny put his earphones in and left field, but people didn't see the fact that at 11 o'clock in the morning, Manny's out there grinding on balls off the wall and hitting in the cage. So like that whole, he played off of that whole, you know, water bottle in the back pocket air, you know, he worked harder than almost anybody I ever played with. Um, you know, so that group was, we kind of knew how to, you know, we breakfast in the morning on the road every morning, 9 a.m. The whole team was down there. And it's something that we saw and you see in high school, you see in college, you rarely see that in the big leagues. You have like clicks here and there, but that whole team was, it wasn't just one or two guys. It was, we went to lunch, we rolled 15, 16 strong coffee in the morning. And I think it, it paid dividends for us. Tito kept us, let us be us. Um, didn't freak out over certain things, but we all knew how to, we knew how to goof around, but we also knew when, when 705 rolled around, it was, it, it was time to go to work. And, um, you, you would just enjoy going to work and playing with guys like that. Absolutely. Hey, Brian, this one's for Bo Payne for, uh, for you. Speaking of clubhouses, he was wanting to know uh, what it was like growing up in the legendary Royals clubhouses like he was around George Brett Wilson and the gang. So what was that like? Well, before then, before my dad got traded to the Royals, I got to hang out in the Cincinnati Reds clubhouse as a little kid. So that was something that was, I didn't get it until much later, but right. I was running around with Pete Rose and Johnny Bench, Tony Perez, you know, that, that bunch. And Sparky Anderson was my babysitter. Or my dad <laughs> playing winter ball. So I, I, I got to go from one good group of guys that showed you how to do things the right way and, and win to another group in Kansas city. And as a little kid, all that being around a bat boy and a ball boy and hanging out in the clubhouse all that time, that really had a profound impact on the way I went about how I uh, prepared myself to just go about things every day because I saw the hardest working guys on the team were the best players on the Reds and on the Royals. And that, 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 was, that was great for me as, as, as a little kid to see the kind of work ethic that those guys uh, that they, they put in and then how accommodating they were to guys that got traded, younger guys coming up. It wasn't uh, a lot like you would hear where the uh, veteran guys, they bullied the, the younger guys or did things like that. They, the veteran guys knew that some of these younger guys were going to help them win ball games, And that's all they cared about is winning ball games. And that was a joy to be around and to watch and just to sit back in the clubhouse and see how, how it all worked together. So, uh, uh, you know, with, with the Royals, my dad got traded to Kansas City in 73. And then from 76 to 85, they went to the uh, playoffs almost every year and went to World Series twice. And with the Reds, he was in the playoffs, I think, three or four times in his up and down five or six years there. So I was around a lot of winning. A lot of good ball players as a kid, and uh, you know that was. I was very fortunate to be around that group of guys because you could have been around guys that didn't teach you the right things, and I could have learned a lot of a lot of bad habits 
but I learned some good habits by being around those good teams with the Reds before they were a big red machine and then the the Royals from 73 to 87. Nice. This is kind of a follow-up question on that uh, from Jordan Poole for you, Brian, as well. He He's talking about his son. His son is seven, almost eight. He's right-handed, hitting, and he also throws right-handed. Um, his, his father's a lefty, and he wanted to teach his son how to hit left-handed. Um, so he's a little bit older now. He's got more power from the right side, but he hits both. So he wants to know, what advice would you give a young switch hitter on how to hit successfully from both sides at an early age? Well, just don't give it up because I almost gave up switch hitting because I was frustrated. I struggled so much from the left side. And you just have to understand that you're totally two totally different hitters. You're like two different people from the right side and the left side. There's different areas of your body that are at work. And it's going to be frustrating at times. It's not, it's, it's hard to hit from one side, let alone trying to hit from two sides. And that's why you don't see that many switch hitters. But the younger you start, the more you build the, um, the muscle memory and just stick with it. You know, don't, don't give it up because I ended up hitting, I was a better hitter for average from the right side, but my, um, my pop and power numbers and things like that were better from the left side. And, and it took some pitches away that some pitchers may throw me being able to hit from the other side. Also, I probably wouldn't have been drafted as high as I was or been able to play early as an everyday player if I wasn't a switch hitter. So, like, when you're a switch hitter and you start struggling from one side, because, like you said, they're different, I'm assuming the mental part of it would – does it transition over to the other side? Or are you excited to go back to the other side? I mean, that's kind of a mental game with yourself, really. I was always – happy to see a left-handed pitcher come in because my, my best side was the right <laughs> side. And, you know, I always told everybody, like, so a lefty's coming in, I got him. I was like, that's how it felt. It's like, I was like, I'll, I'll get on my right side and I get my, my mind right on my right side. Um, and it took me a while to get that confidence from the left side. And I seemed to struggle more from the left side. That was more of a high-maintenance swing than my right side was. But it, it's definitely one of those things where – you have to work as hard, twice as hard because you have two swings. And mentally, it, it beat me up at times early in my career because I struggled so much from the left side. And it'd be two weeks before I'd see a left-handed pitcher. All right. I'm going to give a quick shout-out real quick to our sponsors. We have uh, – this week we have Strong Side Sports Collectibles and Memorabilia. They have everything you could possibly want. As you can look behind me on my walls here, I absolutely love memorabilia. They have autographs. They have baseball cards. They have team memorabilia, vintage uh, photos, anything you can think of. They're on all social media. So check them out. We're going to put a link on the video. It's Strong Side Sports, Collectibles, and Memorabilia. Um, and also our other sponsor is Al I Books. They have children's books. And he wrote several books, and one of them is based on baseball. And I actually have a copy right here so you can see it. It's Legends of Baseball from Ozzy to Aaron. Or Aaron to Ozzy, I'm sorry. Um, but basically, it's, it's a nice learning tool for younger kids to learn the game, the history of the game. And it also – it's educational. So, awesome. Check it out. Um, it's also on Facebook. And we're going to post a link for that as well. So, I appreciate the two sponsors, Ally Books and sports side collectibles and memorabilia. Uh, Doug, this one's for you from Jordan Poole. He said, you played on his favorite school, Florida State. And then he said, what was it like playing for Coach Martin and what kind of impact did he have on you as a player and a future pro? Oh, it, was, it meant everything to me. Um, my, 
it's funny. My parents, my mom worked at University of Miami for years, and I was palling around that field, that university, since I was like eight years old. And I went up to see Tallahassee for the first time and realized that's where I had to, that's where I wanted to go. And, uh, you know, Coach Martin did, you know, wonders for me. Uh, I think it made me a better player, but better, he made me a better man. I mean, he literally taught us every day about, you know, how to go about your business and how, you know, how there's the game's important, but there's more stuff besides that. Um, you know, my, my parents drove up 500 miles one way to see me play every weekend. Um, my biggest regret in my career was not bringing Coach Martin his first national championship, and it still haunts me to this day. See, was college baseball as big as it uh, is now when you was playing? I thought I feel like it was bigger. Um, really? Uh, I mean, I think back to the teams I, I played with. Paul Wilson, he was the number one pick back before he hurt his arm. He was throwing legitimately 99 miles an hour with right. sink. Um, Jonathan Johnson was the seventh pick with the Rangers. Uh, John Wasden, who pitched a while, a long time with the A's, he was a first rounder. I can think of the, I mean, the teams we played, we played Georgia Tech in our conference, and, you know, they had no Mar Garcia Parra, Jay Payton, and, uh, and, and uh, Veritech. So um, we had some, there were some guys and there was it's like every weekend Clemson had great teams. Um, right. Miami had a ton of them, you know, you know Alex Cora is, I mean, they just, the list goes on and on. Pat Burrell, the list goes on and on. Um, and they're still, it's still big and it's still, it's still great. But I just, I remember growing up watching it in the eighties with the, you know, the Will, Will Clark, Rafael Palmero show and Bobby Thigpen and all those guys Omaha meant something back then. It was like, you know, Clemens and Swindell and those guys from Texas. And it was just, I remember, like, the one thing my parents would let me do. They let me stay home from school to watch <laughs> games in Omaha. Um, and uh, that, to me, was my NLB all of what I thought my career was going to be. That, that was going to be the tip of the iceberg for me. If I You know, it's it, there's definitely talent there that doesn't get, you know, especially through this COVID thing, they knock a bunch of rounds down. Um, there's some really good players in, in college baseball right now. This next one's for both of you from uh, Jordan Poole. He wants, and Brian, you can go first. He wants to know what your favorite and least favorite stadiums were to hit in. My favorite stadium to hit in was uh, because I hit their staff well, was Candlestick. We played against the Giants a lot in spring training when I got traded to the Cubs out, out in Arizona. And I made sure that I played in the games against those teams in the National League so I could learn some things about them. And I was able to pick apart some of the pitchers and how they tip pitches. And so I was able to, to wear out the Giants, um, and especially at Candlestick with all the, the, the day games that, that we played against them there. I hit them well. Candlestick was terrible ballpark. It wasn't. It wasn't anything nice about it. But I hit well there, so I liked it. And because I wore out the uh, wore out the Giants, and the worst ballpark was the old uh, Municipal Stadium in in Cleveland. That was uh, that was a miserable miserable place to go in the early '90s. You didn't want to go to Cleveland before they uh, opened up uh, Jacobs Field, and uh, you couldn't wait to get out of there. And you just had a bad attitude going into Cleveland <laughs> and oh. it, was, it wasn't a whole lot of fun and 
from 90 to 92 or 93, I I dreaded going to Cleveland. <laughs> what well, Jacobs Field came in what mid 90s? I think it came in in 94. 94. Okay. 93 or 94, yeah. 94, something like that, yeah. I'm assuming it was a lot better. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it, it, it revitalized the whole downtown, and Cleveland's not a bad place to go now. Gotcha. All right, what about you, Doug? I'm going to have to say I don't – I didn't like facing their staff, but I always hit well in old Yankee Stadium. Um, I love the dampness. I love the smells. I love the, the aura, the – crowd um all of it uh i didn't like facing them but i liked hitting there um and for me i'm gonna have to say camden yards i felt like the mound was like nine steps from home plate and i just felt like everything was really close and i ne- i don't think i i don't think i ever had a, a a decent game or series there um fenway was up there too i had a hard i, I just i i had a i never had a really good series in fenway um, I don't know what it was. The plate seemed like it was off center to me, but uh, I didn't use the monster like I should have when I, when I was there. Uh, Play pepper, man. I, I felt like if I was if I would have been able to come up through the system with the Red Sox, I was better off than when I got there because I went from hitting everything the other way to I get to the Metrodome where they work with me trying to pull everything to use the baggie, and then I get traded to Fenway, and I was like, uh oh, like. I got to go that way again. <laughs> so uh, it took me a while to kind of get that back. But uh, for me, Camden Yards, I felt like I felt like whoever was throwing, like I'd look up and I almost flinched because I was like, damn, is he that that can't be right. That's I, I literally walked it off to try to change my thought, my, my mindset. Like I literally BP, I literally would walk from home plate to the mound and count the steps. And I'm like, damn, it's 60 feet, six inches. I was <sighs> like, it's just me. Like, I feel like this guy's on top of me, but I, I, I couldn't see just the exact opposite of Yankee Stadium. I felt like the mound was the, – the, the hitter's eye was perfect and it was black and you could see the ball really well. And you know, up there with Arizona too, Arizona was one of those places I would love to – I would love to have been a home Diamondback to hit in that place 81 times. All right, so the next question is from Robert Real for you, Doug. Longtime Twins fan. He said, if the Twins had an opening as a manager coming up this year and they offered it, would you take it? And if so, what would you do to let them win a playoff game? How would you justify them winning a playoff game? What would be your strategy? Uh, I already in- I interviewed for it once. <laughs> I okay. didn't quite make it. They took uh, – that was when they hired Paul Molitor. Um, it was me and Tony Lavello, I think, were the last – with a finalist. Um I, I, that's like my dream job because I had all those kids in the minor leagues from, you know, Eddie Rosario, who's doing well with the Braves now, uh, Miguel Sano, Max Kepler, uh, Barrios, all those guys. Um, and I'm not saying this cause I not, no disrespect to Paul, but I had those kids from a ball all the way up. And I just felt like I, we won, I think we won two championships in three years at different levels. They end up winning four rings in a row um, along the way. Um, I just felt like I, I they took a while, but uh, they understood with the importance of where they were in the system and how important they were. They were going to bring respectability back to the, the, the city of Minneapolis, and they, they, they've, they've done it. They just have been consistent. Um, you know, how to win a playoff game, I think those – <laughs> I just felt like I, I was very, very hard on that group just because I knew 
um, that they have the ability to be a playoff team in the big leagues. Um, you know, I think we faced guys from like Tyler Glass now in the playoffs and, and, we, and we beat them and, and kept going. And we did it in A ball. We did it in double A. Um, and then triple A, they kind of took them all and they kind of went to the big leagues. But, um, you know, I mean, that, I would love my crack, especially there's, there's like there's managing the big leagues, of course, is what I want to do. And there's also like that team was I felt like it was the perfect time. Um, uh, they went with Paul. He ends up when, you know, manager of the year and all that stuff. But uh, I, not getting too specific, but uh, I think, you know, go back and try to make us a little more athletic. Um, you know, I think just being a power oriented team is, is one thing, but I, I think those, the, the players, the, the core group that they have there right now are, there's more to them than hitting it over the fence. Um, I think they can do more. I think you, you, you're not getting the complete players that they are by forcing them to do something that they're not. Um, uh, I held them accountable. They, uh, I think I, I, I got uh, my, me and the coaches I had, we got the best out of them because we made them accountable. Um, we weren't, uh, I joke around says I'm not a hugger. We, we didn't hug much, but you know, it's tough love. But, uh, you know, I always say when, for me, it, it sums up to, they, the players raise the bar. They, they have, they hold their own bar. And when they raise it, I, we hold them to that standard and don't let them go below it. And you keep pushing. Um, I'm a big believer in you. You focus on your team and not who you're playing. If we play right, and if we play to our capabilities, the opponent has no face. And I think, I think a little bit along the way, they got away from that. Uh, I know we've had the twins have had trouble with the Yankees over the years. And I think that's more of a mental thing. Um, and I think that, that that comes with makeup and that comes with, you know, how they were brought up and how they were, how they were trained along the way. A lot of the people that I did it didn't really appreciate the way I did it, but at the same token, I feel like those kids are battle tested. I remember the one year they went to, they played the Yankees in the playoffs and I was like tearing up when they were on the third baseline, because I thought, you know what, like these are, these are, uh, all the blood, sweat, and tears we put in the hours in the cages, the hours in the backfields at 10 a.m. in Fort Myers when it's 100 degrees. Um, I was like a proud, a proud papa, and uh, and uh, I would love to get a crack at it. I know as a Braves fan, man, like I know as the Metrodome, but man, those fans they they want a winner, and I still have nightmares from '91. So, uh, <laughs> man, if you build it, they'll come. I promise. I mean, you, you've seen that in Minnesota. They're they're diehards, man. If you get the product on the field, they backed us. And I remember we went from 2000, 2001. 2001 was fantastic, and two thousand two in that place. You know, for the first playoff game they've had since '91, it was it was electric. I remember like having my helmet on and being on the bench and not being able to hear literally having a scream at the person next to you on the field to be like, I can't, I can't hear you. Like all, I mean, you put your helmet on, it was like a concert. You almost felt like when you were done, you almost felt like you were in a concert, like, and you stood right by the speakers for four and a half hours. And when you were done, you were just like, you were just emotionally and physically. I'll never forget. There's a crazy story. AJ Przinsky and I rented it. We rented a, a, a place during the playoffs in 2002. And after, I think it was, I think it was game three. We're at home. We're playing Oakland. We lost. And I remember we sat in front of a TV with it off for like 45 minutes where we didn't say a word. We sat on the couch. I just looked over and I'm like, Oh, I don't think I can do this tomorrow. Like I, I, <laughs> I feel like 
I feel like hell. I mean, I, I'm drained. I'm up, down, emotions, and then you find a way to do it again. But literally, that's what it feels like coming out of a game that you're so mentally into of every pitch matters. And it's 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 what baseball is supposed to be like all the time. It's tough to do, but coming back and 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 playing playoff baseball, it just there's nothing like it. Uh, do you all, speaking of playoff baseball, do either of you have a rooting interest right now? I mean, are you all following it, or is there a team you're pulling for currently? I follow, but no rooting interest. Uh, Cubs, Cardinals, if they were in it, um, then I would probably go to some games. But I What about of, you, Doug? I, I mean, I obviously I, – I have kids that I've, I've coached uh, they're everywhere. I mean, I, I started with the Dodgers. I coached Corey Seager. I coached Jock Peterson. Um, you know, the, and then I've got some guys. I had a guy from the twin system that was on the Rays bullpen. Um, I don't really have a necessarily team I follow. Obviously, uh, I like – I kind of I, I kind of like uh, right now, I'm hoping the Red Sox kind of pull it off a little bit. Uh, been a Dodger fan just because of Dave Roberts and – um, some of the guys that I know there and played with played with Kershaw one year before I retired. Uh, so, you know, I got guys sprinkled all over the place, so I don't really have one team I absolutely pull for, but um, I just pull for the guys that I, I, I personally know Eddie Rosario. I'm, I'm glad to see him have a great postseason. So it's more of a personal thing. I want to see my guys do well. Dude, Rosario is our MVP of the playoffs so far. I said it a long time ago. People thought I was crazy. And I, they, I remember, having I got a conversation today about it and how I was talking to my son. I was like, it's funny how four, like it had to be five, six, seven years ago. Now it was Eddie was coming up in the minor league system. And I had the whole organization laughing at me when I, I said, they, they asked a question about Eddie, can he steal 20 bases in the big leagues? And I was like, all you have to do is tell Eddie he can't and it'll get done. And uh, I mean, he played on the Puerto Rican world uh, baseball classic team at like 19 or 20 years old. So he can handle the stuff. He was made for this. And I'm, I'm loving the fact that he's getting his due uh, and, and getting every chance to shine in October and making him, everybody knows who he is. Cause he's got power. He's got speed. He can do, he hangs in well against the lefties. Um, he's a better outfielder than people give him credit for a little out of control at times, but uh, you know, as far as the, as far as the moment, no moment's too big, and when the lights shine the brightest, Eddie 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 picks his game up. Well, so he had a, he had a cycle earlier in the season when he got traded to Atlanta. Then last night, he hit the home run early out of the way. He went for the triple. He got the single, and you're like, well, the double's probably one of the easier ones. He said, screw you guys. I'm going to go two-run homer. I'm going to go for the two-run homer day, and then put the Dodgers away tonight. So he, he just said, screw the cycle. I'm going to go. I'm going to one-up that. <laughs> Uh, this one's for you, Brian. So, uh, Josh Wright wants to know your dad was a 300 hitter batting just right-handed only. How old were you when you started to switch it? And who was the person that kind of drove you down that path to say, maybe you should try this. I did it when I was probably like 10 or 11 years old, because some of the older kids in my neighborhood were left-handed hitters and I liked their swing. It's pretty swing. I I wanted to be like them. They were, they were high school kids and, I was young and in junior high, and I, they let me play with them every now and then. And I just thought the left-handed swing looked better than the right-handed swing, so I wanted to teach myself how to do that. But my dad really didn't have any influence on me switching. He had an influence me sticking with it in high school because he said if I wanted to play pro ball, 
I'd have a chance to get drafted higher if I was a switch hitter. So he encouraged me to stick with it, but I learned it just by watching my friends and wanting to be like them in the neighborhood. Was one of your swings like from either side, like longer than the other one? I think my swing at times, as I said before, it was, it was more maintenance that I needed to work on from the left side because it wasn't natural. Um, I had a better stroke consistently from the from the right side, but I didn't generate much. I didn't do any damage. I could hit some singles. But uh, most of my extra base hits, home runs that I hit were from the left side. Gotcha. All right, Doug, this one's from you for uh, from Mike Suarez. He said you're a teammate of – you touched on this earlier, though, but you're a teammate of Ortiz with the Twins when he was kind of getting started, more of a platoon-type player, and then again with the Sox when he was an MVP candidate. He said, did you see the potential in him early on, and what differences did you see later on with the Sox? Oh, definitely David had – I mean, David could hit a ball, you know, off the roof in the dome on the back wall at will. Uh, I think for the most part – what people don't understand is that David on the turf, like you could see his like knees bother him even at a young age when we had long home stands. And then we'd go on the road and the first couple of days he'd kind of get his legs back and he would take off and then we'd go back home again. Um, people forget that 2002, I forgot what we won the division. It seemed like by like 15 or 16 games, I think that year, um, and when we went from when we went from three or four games up to twelve to fifteen, it was because of David. David broke his wrist, slide into home early in the year. And when we got David back in the second half, I look at his second half numbers. He hit like twenty homers and had like seventy or eighty RBIs. Uh, so David did that. It just didn't do it for for a full year. And I think getting him off the turf, and he got tremendously stronger. He couldn't bench one thirty five when he was in Minnesota. He just didn't believe in weights and but he could still hit the ball a mile. Right. Um, but I, I think the monster really helped him out because um, he let him use the whole field. David was probably the smartest hitter I ever played with, and that includes Manny uh, and the rest of them. David, I remember playing against David when he went to Boston, and he could see me take one swing, and he knew exactly like what I, what I was doing wrong and what I needed to do better, and he would let me know. So um, he was just intelligent, and, and getting put in that lineup, um, obviously having Manny in front of him or behind him was a huge help, but, um, I think David's confidence grew and he got, definitely got stronger and the monster, that little, that 300 foot wall over there was, this, was a security blanket. And, uh, you know, David was always good in, in clutch situations. So we saw it the year before. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we still look back on that team in 2002, 2003, said if we would have had a chance to bring the same group back we had in 02, bring it back in 03, I think things would have been a lot different. Uh, this one's for you, Brian, from Mike Suarez as well. He said you're on the 97 Mets team when interleague play started. He says, how would that compare the first Subway Series to a regular season game? What was the difference there in your, in your opinion? I didn't get traded to the Mets till later in 97. So I didn't, I didn't play. Oh, okay. In a, I didn't play in the Subway Series until 98. So the only thing I can compare it to in 97 was the first of its kind was we played the White Sox when I was with the Cubs. Okay. And that was, you know, that was a, a huge deal. Um, the first time, I think it might have been the first time that they played in a regular season meaningful game since maybe a World Series or so. I don't even know if they played in the World Series in their early 1900s when the, when the Cubs were good. 
but uh, the whole city was going was going crazy. We, we played those games on the south side, and um, you know that that was fun to be a part of. And I, I wasn't a big interleague person, you know, interleague play person. I like I like the separate leagues. I like the uniqueness of both. I do too. But uh, but I did like those rivalry games. So I was I was able to play in White Sox Cubs and uh, and a Yankees Mets uh, a, a few series and. And those were, uh, you know, different. They were almost like postseason games. And the energy level at the ballpark and in the city was was, uh, was pretty special and pretty cool. This is another one for you, Brian, from uh, Juan Rosales. He said, I grew up watching you when the Royals would come to play the Rangers. He said, did you enjoy playing and visiting the da- Dallas area? And was Arlington Stadium really that hot for players? Arlington, it was hot as hell there. Yeah, it was it was really hot. It was like in a pit. And they had that um, they had a thermometer, a temperature gauge. So if even if you didn't think it was that hot, you'd turn around and look at it and it'd make you think it's almost like what they do in Colorado when they put that altitude that it just it's a mental, it's a kind of kind of mental thing that you're like, it's really that hot here. And we're really playing a day game here. Um, and that that was the probably the hottest other than playing in Kansas City on the turf some uh, Saturday and Sunday afternoons, playing in Arlington. And being out where we were, I didn't really get into the Dallas area. So I didn't even feel like I was in Dallas when we were there in Arlington. We just did everything, eat after games and hang out around the stadium in Arlington. So I didn't really ever get into Dallas much until I retired. So I, I, it, we could have been anywhere. It was just hot. And miserable, and uh, it was like in a bowl. Clubhouse had good AC, though. I knew that. Uh, Zach, the clubhouse manager there, in, uh, in at the stadium at Arlington Stadium, made sure that it was probably fifty-five or sixty degrees in the clubhouse, and you didn't want to leave after batting practice to go back out on the field to get ready for infield or play the game. Uh, and I could see why those teams didn't do well in the second half of the season. You can't take batting practice every day in that heat. It's it's gonna it's gonna wear you down. And I don't think they ever played a playoff game at that stadium. They didn't get into the playoffs until they moved into the new stadium. So we're gonna wrap up with this one final question, but it's for both of you. Where you both had coaching experience um, as a player, who was the one manager that stood out the most that you played for? And as far as yourself coaching. What was the one attribute you would say you kind of pulled from them to try to instill into your team as well? So, Doug, I'll start with you. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, I felt like I, I I tried to take a little bit of all of them and and create my own style within that. Um, uh, I thought, you know, Terry Francona was great at, you know, staying in the now, like stay in the present or, you know, you know, it all goes back to we're down three, nothing. He just said, win today. And that makes so much sense. If he thought about beating the Yankees four times in a row, it was, it was almost insurmountable, but he thought about if we can just win today. And he kept that mantra. Um, Joe Torrey was the best at diffusing a bomb before it even remotely got lit. Uh, he could see us not playing the way we were supposed to be playing. I mean, a six, seven game win streak, he would come and make us aware that, Hey, I don't like the way we're going. It's like, let's nip this before it starts. Um, Tom Kelly fundamentals, uh, you know, had a crazy way of doing it, but he, the game 
nothing was every detail was hit um you know, i i i mean i can think of you know, Gardy, you know ron gardenhire as far as uh, learning how to you know make fun of yourself but also be very business oriented um could do it you could you could be hard nose but also joke around behind closed doors and it was okay to laugh um and that that sounds silly but uh we went from tom kelly to him and it was like we weren't allowed to make facial expressions some nights but um you know you, i think that's the best way to do it um yeah. you know i'd be foolish if i didn't take a little bit of the best ones I got a chance to play for. I mean, from like I said, I got to play for Joe Torre twice, Terry Francona, Ron Gardenhire, Tom Kelly, Tommy Lasorda, um, you know, Buddy Bell. Buddy Bell was – I always feel like he's probably the, the most – obviously his family name is huge, and he was a hell of a player and a very good manager, but he didn't get the due he deserved as a manager. Um, you know, the list goes on and on. Uh, John Russell. I had in Pittsburgh and he, I had him in the minor league. So without him, I don't make it to the big leagues. Um, you know, a lot of the guys that go unnoticed uh, in the minor league side of it that uh, were very influential to me. And I'm sure I'm leaving some people out. Don Mattingly, if I'd have had him earlier in my career, I think I'd have got a thousand more hits. Um, you know, Donnie was a, one of the best players of my, uh, I grew up watching and probably, probably the best player I ever knew as far as in my eyes. And, um, you know, he never made me feel beneath him as a hitter, which is not, you know, not easy to do considering how great he was. Um, George Brett, the limited time I spent with him, he wasn't a, necessarily a coach, but we would sit and on, he'd be on the treadmill and I'd be on the bike and we would just talk hitting. Just little things like that that I try to pull from personal experiences that I've faced and I've had. Um, I think being a coach for me was I've been a three-hole hitter on a playoff team and I've been the 26th man on a 25-man roster. And, and understand that everybody's job is important. And I thought Alex Cora said the other day that he was always been the utility guy or the, you know, the last guy on the team. And I think losing, like having someone that understands that role um, and making them feel important too is just what makes a great manager and it makes a great teammate and it makes them feel important too because there's going to be games that you're going to need them to win for you also and, and not forget about them and not be Mr. Going Good and be only one of the guys that are rolling. So, um, like I said, I've been very fortunate with the guys I got to rub elbows with along the way. What about you, Brian? Well, my managers were – with Kansas City was John Wathman and my father. I had Jim Riggleman with the Cubs, Bobby Valentine with the Mets. I was with the Rockies for just a little bit. I had um, Jim Leland. And then Jim Fergosi with uh, with the Blue Jays. I was there for about a month, month and a half. And I learned a lot of good things from all of them and also a lot of bad things and what not to do. And I think that's one of the biggest things. I think that's one of the biggest attributes that I've turned into when I started coaching is learning from the separate managers that I had that did things that I wouldn't do to a player you know, to make them feel a certain way at a certain time, you know, do, doing some of those things. So I think that's the, the biggest thing that I learned is just, and I was sitting back there, it's like, if I'm ever managed, I will, I will come out in front of the team in this situation. And, you know, there's a lot to be said about 
learning what not to do along with learning what, what, what to do or what, what you think feels right. And there was just a lot of things that I saw at times that I was like, I'm not going to do that to my player. I'm not going to do that to my team. And I think that those are some of the things that helped me kind of develop what kind of managing style and coaching style that, that I have is just from things that I didn't like what I saw from minor league, major league guys, how they treated their team, how they talked to the guys at times and, and things like that. Uh, um, I've been all across the spectrum of having good years, bad years, and, and know the feeling. And I think that helps me out too. Uh, you know, it, it's, we've all been in somebody's shoes on, on the field. You know, we've all gone over 30 something or 40 something, maybe, you know, uh, the majority of us that play the game, and I think that's what makes baseball a little bit different from the other sports is we've all struggled. Now, we might not struggle for as long as, as some other guys, but we've all been in that feeling where you don't think you're going to get another hit. You don't think you can do anything right. You <laughs> come up in situations in the game where you're doubting yourself. You know, it, it, those, all those feelings creep in over the course of 162 game season. And I think that uh, as a coach and as a, a head coach and a manager and an assistant coach, I always are very, very aware that I sucked for a long period of time. And it's not that easy. I, I think you hit the nail on the head. Ne you're never as good as you think you are. And you're never as bad as they say you are. That's one thing right. Terry, uh, Terry Steinbach told me a long time, my rookie year. And that stuck with me forever. And I think I, I, I probably, I don't want to speak for Brian, but I, uh, the, the great ones never forget how hard the game really is. And that's the, like he, he hit the nail on the head. The game is really hard and you cannot lose sight of that while you're being a coach or a manager. You understand that this is really, really hard and you're going to have those feelings where I, there's never, like you could underhand me the ball right now. I don't think I'm going to get a hit and that you have to battle through that mentally, but you have to also have support of your staff behind you to understand that, Hey, I've been there. You're going to get out of it, that type of stuff, but like, don't ever lose sight of how hard this game really is. I mean, and my, my biggest takeaway on what you just said, Brian, is and I've been in management for 20 years, and so many people get into that rut where, well, it was done to me. So that's how it's always been done. You know, it don't mean it was right. So like you said, pick up on the things that you're like, maybe I could tweak that and do it a little bit better and still get my buy-in from my folks and do it a separate way. Just because it was done to me, don't mean it was right. There's so many people that just get into that mindset and like don't want to, you know, change it for the better. And use yeah, that as a school. positive. Right. I, I went back to school because I signed out of high school. So when I started coaching in college in 2013, I went to school also as and coaching. And I got a psychology degree because I thought that that would help me be a better coach, a better communicator, understanding the things that I know about the game, but also understanding people a little bit more and have a little bit more compassion with what they're going through at times and trying to tie those things together. So I think that that helped me out a lot also is just understanding the mindset, people, it's a different society, what they're going through now than what I was going through when I was coming up in high school and getting into football. And it, it allowed me to take a couple steps back and look at it through, you know, a different, different eyes and different perspective. 
Amen to that. I mean, I, I, I goes back to the question you guys asked earlier about what I would do differently. I remember Paul Molitor calling me and asking me about Max Kepler. Um, Max and I, I had him for three years in the minor leagues and the way I, my, I say hard nose kind of like style wasn't working with him. And, uh, and one year it clicked and he had a great year and I'll never forget this. Paul was more of a introvert, right? Paul would be quiet on the bench and wouldn't a guy kid would make a mistake and he'd go down to the end of the bench. And he wouldn't say anything to him to whereas I was more of, okay, what'd you see? Let me hear you speak, talk. Okay. We'll fix it. No big deal. And I remember Paul going, I just don't think I can reach these guys. I go, Paul, you have to look at it this way. Like Max, for example, would make a base running blunder and go down to the end of the bench. You wouldn't say anything to him. I go, the, that old adage of wait till your father gets home. That's what my, that's what my players were having with Paul because they were thinking the absolute worst. And Paul was just brushing it off as, you know, well, I don't have a problem with that. It's just, he's a young kid. I'm like, Paul, you have to go up to him. They're freaking out because you're not speaking to them. Like they're used to people coming up to them and telling them immediately. I go, I go, and I would have to call the player and be like, Paul's okay. You guys are all right. Molly's all right with that. You just have to understand that, you know, different people handle people different ways. And you, you all, you're down at the end of the bench, freaking out, thinking the worst that he thinks you're the worst player. I go, no, he's already thinking about two other things besides your base running blunder. He's okay. He'll handle it. But like that's whole, that whole psychology thing is, is, is huge. And you're right. The kids are different. I think that's what me coaching high school right now is huge because I'm learning how to like the high school generation that age group, like I'm learning as I'm going, as, as you know, knowing the baseball that I know, but still it doesn't matter what your information is. If you can't get it across to who you're trying to get it across to. And I'm learning that every day. Gentlemen, it's been great. We've, we've been talking baseball nonstop for an hour. It's ran a little long, but it's been good insight. The fans appreciate it. The group appreciates it. So I'm so grateful you guys came on and uh, the show should uh, drop probably in the morning. I'll make sure I tag you guys on the show. Share it out, please. And uh, I'd love to have you back on down the road, and uh, we'll talk more baseball if it sounds good to you guys. Yeah, I just Thank want to listen you for to having us on. For sure. It, that's good stuff. Doug, you take it easy. Good luck with everything. You too, buddy. You too, buddy. Right. Thank you. Have a good, Thanks, have a good guys. holiday. Okay.